Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, the biggest financial crimes and the best life experiences. More and more we start seeing organized crime become more sophisticated, and that is a global issue because the bad guys are working together too. We build a 10-foot wall and the bad guys, you know, have an 11-foot ladder. There's that fine line when it comes to business between being a bad businessman and intent to defraud. We, I had a huge case actually from three different countries flying into the U.S. and um, taking money out of ATMs in Manhattan. What well, was millions of dollars? But the, the question is, where was the money going? I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe. Leave us a rating or review. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. And I want to say an extra special thank you to everybody who has helped us out over the last couple of weeks. It's been our goal to make this show a lot more interactive, and I wanted to set up a voicemail system, but I had no idea how to do this. So a huge thank you to everyone who emailed us, sent us messages, commented, about how we can actually make this possible. Thank you very much. I'm really excited about debuting this at the end of July, a little nervous, but really excited about making this show much more interactive. So our first guest is a financial crime investigator and educator who has worked on some of the biggest financial crimes, everything from fraud and identity theft to embezzlement and money laundering involving everyday people, small businesses, huge corporations, terrorist organizations, drug cartels. The list just goes on and on. It is a really fascinating subject to me. And the beginning of the interview, we kind of have to get some of the terms out of the way. But as we go along, when we start to follow where this money goes... It's fascinating, scary, but fascinating, even though there are some details that she really can't expand upon or go into. This is financial crime investigator and educator Suzanne Lynch. So when we talk about financial crime, right, like that's obviously very broad topic, but what are the main kinds of financial crimes that you're usually looking at? Fraud. Money laundering is also considered a financial crime. We also look at things like maybe a little bit narrow the scope to identity theft. So bottom line, financial crime encompasses quite a few different areas. Um, Some people call it white collar crime. uh, But for most of us normal folks day to day, it's um, theft. Um, Someone signs your name, right, to a check, to a contract. Um, and, and you are really been, you know, scammed. So all these terms that we like to say all come under that umbrella. Is there one type of financial crime though, that dominates all of the other ones? Like this is, if something's going to happen to you, it's going to be this. Probably theft. Um, identity theft is one of the fastest growing, um, crimes out there. I always hear about these kind of crimes, but I never hear about anybody going to jail. These kinds of crimes, unfortunately, typically what we've seen, those that did, because there have been some prosecutions, 
Typically, these are federal crimes uh, because they're they're happening, um, you know, over the computer. It's it's difficult for like law enforcement unless it's within their jurisdiction, right, to investigate and, and, and prosecute. Although there are larger police departments that do that, but it's trying to understand the scope because you may be a victim, right, where you live. I may be a victim on the other side of the country. All these different people can be victims. How does one identify and consolidate? Because most of these um, types of crimes are done by pretty sophisticated um, bad guys. Also, many times they're not located in this country, right? Because we do everything online. When you kind of look at the, the other types of financial crime, right? Like I hear about fraud and identity theft. Do you also kind of research and teach about, you know, where I hear about like businesses committing these financial crimes and things like that? I spent many years before uh, moving into academia uh, at MasterCard, okay, um, investigating uh, merchants, right? You know, we always talk about my credit card or your card or debit card. What about the folks that take those cards, right? Merchants. So there is that side of the house, and that's from a card perspective. There's also businesses um, that are set up, and uh, yeah, their goal is to maybe you know take everyone's credit card and use you know use it. We think it's legitimate, um, and then find out it doesn't really ex you know it doesn't exist. You know more and more as we go what we call brick and mortar, we go away from merchants, you know, pretty much how many of us do our online? Do we really know um, who we're doing business with? I guess I never even look, right? Like, I don't even think about it. I'm just like, oh, okay, well, yeah. I, this is on Amazon, so it must be fine. In your experience, when you kind of look at businesses that get involved in financial crimes, were they legitimate businesses to begin with and kind of went bad? Or were they set up to always kind of be bad businesses? So we've got a couple of different things here. You have like, you know, we see in the news companies where, you know, their their business is failing and they start to get desperate. And you know, we like to say cook the books. And then we see issues like, and we've seen that, what we call Ponzi schemes, right? Hey, investment, you know, give me your money, I'll investment and invest it and you'll get all this other money back when in fact they don't, right? They're just taking the money. And, you know, we can go back to the Bernie Madoff days that everybody knows, which is what he did for years. Businesses that look legitimate, especially obviously financial services, financial advisors and things like that. Not to put a, you know, on that, but there have been some um, unscrupulous uh, situations like that in the past. So there, there's, especially in financial crime, there's such a psychological background to, in many cases, why people do what they do. When you talk about like cooking the books, like how do, how do companies do that? They can do things like, I think I'm going to sell 40 orders for merchandise. So I'm going to claim that as income, even though nobody's paid for it yet. So what it is, is when I say cook the books, um, it, it's very old fashioned term, so I'm making my financials look better than they really are. Let's say they report quarter, quarterly, January, February, March, April, you come out 
and oh, this business is doing really well. Well, they really don't have the cash in cash flow because the the merchandise hasn't you know been purchased. In other words, not money in the door. I'm just looking at potential orders, and this is a very simplistic way to put it. You're making your financial statements look better a lot of times for more investors. Um, you know, things of that nature. And and that's kind of similar also to, you know, a Ponzi scheme. Oh, I've got this, you know, I mean, think about it. I fake the financial statements so more people will give me money because it looks like I'm making money. Who's who's kind of watching over this? Is somebody actively watching it all the time or does it, somebody have to report it or how does this kind of work? There are, let me begin by saying first, there is no um, centralized fraud reporting, all right, in this country. Nobody has to report their losses. Somebody's going to get you in some way, right? It's like, is this inevitable that eventually this is going to happen to everyone in every company? No. no. I mean, can, do we fall for being victims in some scams? Absolutely. The, the, the key here is just to be aware. You know, we, we do very well talking about, you know, protect your credit card number. You've got to protect your account number. I jump into the jump into these a little bit earlier than I usually do. But are you ready for some listener submitted slash harder questions? Sure. Is financial crime generally harder to catch or harder to prove? Both. When I say that, because I and I tell my students and if any of them hear this, they're going to go, oh, God, she said it again. We build a 10-foot wall and the bad guys, you know, have an 11-foot ladder, right? They're always figuring out some of the protections and whatever we, uh, we, we go through. So think of, for instance, the, um, the COVID, uh, right? The, the money that was given by the federal government, huge fraud and all that, right? But, you know, we wanted to... Make sure, especially small to medium-sized businesses too, got the money quickly so they, it would help them survive, right, when the federal program started. Um, and a lot of it, we just, you know, we weren't able to detect because people can be very, very underhanded in how, you know, they, they put together different things, um, the loan package and all that. People lie. People make stuff up. Um, there's only so much what we call due diligence checking that we can see. So then, and, and I know that's a very high level because you could talk about that, but there are a lot of um, uh, technologies out there that uh, prevent or, or detect, um, detect fraud. We call it unusual activity. What's normal, let's say just for you as a you know, consumer, how do you use your account? And we look at that from a business perspective. The second thing about prosecution um, is, you know, there's also that term. And I, uh, in my previous life investigations, there's that fine line when it comes to business between being a bad businessman and intent to defraud. That's kind of a, a, a big question that we have in that sense is like, how do you tell the difference between somebody who is like accidentally doing something as a business Versus we did this on purpose, right? Like I created this system and everything was supposed to be fine, but I damn well knew that this was going to happen. Like how do you kind of separate as an investigator and in teaching 
the line between being illegal and immoral. Uh huh. Ethics. Uh, yes, ethics is is a, is a huge uh, foundation, but that's why you know going back and saying, all right, um, yeah, I'm kind of in trouble. I cooked the books, right? So where's my intent? Uh, a, a, a quick war story from years and years ago. Uh, small business, couple different locations uh, in uh, in a city. Um, pizza and actually scammed Hopewell. We were hoping to prove intent of, oh, a couple hundred thousand dollars. So law enforcement was investigating. And, but what we had to do, because he was like, oh, I just had a problem. I, you know, I always, you know, I might have overdrafts in my account because my, I don't get paid. You know, there's a hundred different types of excuses, right? So what did we have to do to prove intent? Um, Literally, in this scenario, I am counting cans of tomato paste. Because if this is, this guy says he's making this much money and he has to buy these supplies and that's where he says the money went. Yeah, because like... If you're really selling these many pizzas, you should have bought this many things of tomato paste. So proving intent to defraud is what makes financial crime cases uh, more challenging. In your experience, right? And I know we're kind of painting with a broad brush, but for a general audience kind of thing, in your experience, is the intent, even if you can't prove it, right? Are companies ever just like, oh, I was total accident? Uh, of course, I'm extremely c- cynical after, you know... Uh, <laughs> Being in this field for many, many years, I would still say it's, uh, you know, it's rare. It's an accident. However, especially from an internal perspective, how do you prove that, right? Um, And so some people that, let's say embezzlement, those are people, employees that steal from their employers, right? Um, You know, when you say an accident, wait, I wrote a check to me. You know, depending what level of access and what your role is in an organization, I mean, you can get away with, and and it usually happens uh, with these kinds of scams for years, um, because we as humans basically trust. This is this is kind of a question along those lines of like illegal versus immoral slash whatever, right? And without, we're just kind of talking about hypotheticals and that kind of stuff. You know, when you look at something like, okay, the housing market is rising super fast and there's a possibility and rumors that big companies are coming in and buying these houses to inflate the prices. Like, is that something that could be looked at as a financial crime or more just kind of like mm, shady business or illegal? It's not illegal. People still have to give permission to sell their houses, right? Yeah. I think it's just one of those things that maybe like, and we're not talking like in those kind of things in general, where you find out a company is maybe acting in a faith you didn't think that they were acting in. Is it unethical? You may say that, but if you're the business, you may say, no, it's not. It's just business. Now there have been scenarios um, that uh, this buying of, you know, a, a number of houses 
have been um, is a way also to how do we how do I put this without going down the rabbit hole? Um, foreign investors, um, not all, but some countries that maybe we don't, the United States has issues with, uh, are using uh, that ability to buy houses um, to kind of hide the proceeds of whether it's corruption, uh, crime, things like that. Um, so they are also, that's a section that in my world we're looking at. Is that a fundam fundamental flaw of our approach to things, right? That we have this kind of, at least in the United States, in my opinion, have this like, look, as, as long as you're making money, whatever you're doing is okay. You know, the classic line. Yeah. It's not illegal and I'm making money. And, and we are, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, during my travels and working uh, over the globe, you know, people would always say, you Americans live to work, right? And we just work to live. Do other countries seem to have as much of a problem with it as we do? I don't think it's to the degree, but yeah, I mean, is there fraud and corruption? Dear God, yes, uh, all over. Uh, however, I, I don't think it's to the extent, uh, but more and more we start seeing organized crime become more sophisticated, and that is a global issue. That is um, organized, there is, we call it transnational organized crime that has become uh, really more extensive because the bad guys from all over the world, you know, we talk about our globalization. Well, guess what? The bad guys are working together too, whether it's a drug cartel in Mexico, um, working with um, countries in Asia to move drugs, launder their money uh, or groups in Europe. So everybody's working, everybody's working together now. Like when you talk about all the bad guys kind of working together, is that mainly through money laundering or are they doing other stuff in the financial area? Well, a lot of it is money laundering. Uh, it's also, for instance, um, when we talk about, for instance, wildlife, uh, you know, uh, those animals that are considered, you know, on the uh, endangered species list, guess who's working to uh, working together? Um, on the imp illegal importing of these endangered uh, animals and things, the, the drug dealers are now working with the wildlife people. This one I'm starting to wonder about too. How is a Ponzi scheme illegal, but a multi-level marketing company is fine? Oh, oh. yeah. Yeah. I have that same question. I really do. When you look at it from strictly kind of like your professional and research experience, like, is there a difference between a Ponzi scheme and a multi-level marketing company? Well, there's still, you know, multi-level marketing has some kinds of goods and services, right? Uh, in theory, you know, but you're bringing more people on to sell. Hey, you know, you can sell my product and I get, I make my money. Now, th there could be some local laws that I'm not aware of, frankly, um, but a lot of people also, were they actually defrauded? Okay. So this is the, 
the you know kind of situation was well this was a business that didn't do right were you led astray was it a heart you know a sales pitch yes but that again that fine line with in you know kind of intent to defraud now a ponzi scheme is set up to give me your money right i'm investing it in its very simplest form and you will get a lot of money. But what do I do instead? I take all that money and keep, you know, trying to pay investors back with your money. So I create this illusion that I'm making a lot of money till it all falls apart. Now, are there multi-level marketing companies where that happens as well? Yes. However, there is that fine line on intent to defraud, remember? That, that's what makes it... You know, is it kind of a, you know, sh really, you know, shaky or, you know, shady type of thing? Yes, it can be. But the intent to defraud is obviously, uh, you know, because even in Ponzi schemes, many of the times these guys are charged with bank fraud. I mean, that's what Bernie Madoff, you know, and plus a number of Security and Exchange Commission, although they don't prosecute criminally, uh, you know, the FBI or different uh, law enforcement agencies do the actual criminal prosecution in, for instance, a Bernie Madoff case. Um, the SEC just does a lot of the investigation. Is it kind of the difference, like a Ponzi scheme was always going to be a ripoff, but an ML and in multi-level marketing, it could work. Correct. Right? Like, well, you might make money. We know you're not going to, but you might. <laughs> it's well, there's some very successful, uh, but most of them are now operating outside the U.S., multi-level, some of the more famous. Is that a coincidence? I think not. Biggest financial crime you've ever investigated? So I tell people uh, that my job changed on September 12th. I was working in New York City that day, so the ability to um, contribute. Uh, to finding how things were funded and that type of thing. And, and that might not be really the, the right answer, but what I'm saying is that um, with sophisticated crime nowadays, it may not be the total amount, uh, dollar amount, but if you can get the, the bad guys based on your financial investigation that supports it, to me, that's what's most important. I would imagine, like, if you get them for one thing, they were probably doing something else. Well, oh, yeah, absolutely. But when I when we look at the financial flows of bad guys, too, um, obviously we still have to look at you know dollar amounts and different things like that. But when you look at um, different things that fund, um, could be terrorism, organized crime, and things like that. Um, you know, we, I had a huge case actually with, um, and I won't go into all the details, um, but from three different countries flying into the U S and, um, taking money out of ATMs in Manhattan. And I know it sounds very, whatever on the surface, it's like, how could that be? What well, was millions of dollars over time? But the, the question is, where was the money going and what was it being used to? And what was it going to be used 
before. So, but like when, when we hear about kind of, you know, you, you always get like the phone call, right? I'm from the IRS, the debt collection kind of stuff. Is that like, who's doing that kind of stuff? Do you think, is that the kind of thing that like, Ooh, we don't know where this money is going. We don't know. You're right. And remember how I said that we have many transnational organized crime groups that work together now. So what we're seeing is, you know, what's the money funding? Uh, it could be terrorism. It could be uh, drugs. It could be people just are stealing money. You know, good old fashioned, uh, I just want your money. And, and that's still pretty much the case. However, we see that um, uh, as something where we talk about human trafficking um, or we talk about uh, narcotics, things like that. You still got to buy the, you know, the the goods, right? And typically those, you know, how do you uh, you buy the the ingredients? So, for instance, fentanyl, which is huge, right, is part of um, most of the majority of narcotics, um, and unfortunately, a, a, a real problem that comes from China. And so, hey, I I may need to buy that. So the more drugs I sell, right, and where do I wash the money? And, and so it, it's kind of this never ending cycle. But at the end of the day, if you're, you know, if you're saying you're with the IRS, you know, we just we just want to make our money. Right. Uh, we just we're good old fashioned thieves. Smartest example that you can think of, like, oh, that was pretty smart on their part. Dumbest example. OK, so I can still use that one of the tomato oh, sauce. Yeah. If you saw this guy, you would never think, how in, did he figure out how to kite and mix up and steal a half a million dollars? If you saw him, you would say, oh, my God, he was really smart in how he did it. Um, and it took a while to figure out and remember to prove intent, which obviously one of the last recourses was me sitting down and, you know, well, there were others counting cases of tomato paste. This guy was good. He was able to move his money around. And, uh, you know, when you found the boat, that always helped too. That was always a good intent. Um, but then you have, you know, and it's more like a street crime. Uh, there's a huge, and it's all over the country, called the Felony Lane Gang. Felony Lane Gang. These guys... Um, are, I like it because I like to call it old school. So they break into cars. This is all over the country. And they steal wallets and things like that. I'm like, oh, it's non-technical. Good old, good old fashioned, just car theft. <laughs> um, so, so what they do is uh, they go and whether it's a car, checks, get it. They actually use checks too. They go to the bank and most of them are smaller banks. They may not have the type of sophisticated technology, although they are uh, getting better at it. So they go to the drive-through. Well, those banks and credit unions that still have drive-through, the lane farthest, right? Yeah. From the actual bank yeah. building, we always call the felony lane. Because the bad guys, well, and again, they're dumb. 
didn't think anybody could see them. Well, if you go to any drive-through, they have a camera there, but th then they got they get caught. That's pretty much all the questions that I got. Is there anything else you think that we missed, or anything else like that? Um, I, I we've covered a lot, uh, a wide range of um, that fraud is everywhere, right? Unfortunately, so many different levels, and I think it was great, and I appreciate that. You know, the, just talking about everything from multi-level marketing to you know, check fraud, identity fraud, things of that nature. Um, and you obviously this could, you know, you could talk a half a day on this stuff at least. Um, or in my case, I could teach a class for 16 weeks on this stuff. Uh, but I, I think we covered it. I just want people to be aware and, you know, the messages that are out there, um, you know, that please, please, please never give out your information. Uh, obviously, unless it's the bank, you call them, you know, the old adage, don't call, you know, what, don't call us, we'll call you or something like that. J just make sure you know what you're doing. You know, I used to say it's 10 p.m. <laughs> Do you know where your financial information is? Right. I missed this one. Are you surprised that nobody really went to jail over the 2008? Yes. How come? I, I guess because uh, when you look at the mortgages, because I'm assuming yeah, this is that, when the, the housing crash, right? Yes, and there were a lot of a lot of small players that were prosecuted, but this has always been the problem in general. Um, is that um, in many corporations, whether it's a bank or whatever, very rarely do senior level people go to jail. And it could be from the mortgage crisis. It could be, oh, you know, we sent money to Iran by mistake. No, you didn't. You were consistently sending money to Iran, right? Guys at that level, ladies at that level, I like to, you know, equal opportunity, right? Um, rarely, rarely get prosecuted because it's too hard uh, to, to dig. And they layer themselves up the food chain, I like to call it. But yeah, there was a task force um, and there were some small players that did go to uh, to jail. But some of the ones uh, I and I can't remember the um, uh, Mozilla, uh, what was it? Angelo, I think, you know, you look at some of the banks that went under. Should those people have probably uh, maybe gone to jail? But remember, it was hard to prove intent. When we call up, you know, these liar, liar loans, the mortgages um, and banks just didn't care. There's a, a great video on a whistleblower from a very, very large national bank who talks about the pressure. Or we look at what's in the paper about uh, Wells Fargo. People are pressured, right, to, you know, bring in more loans, bring in more uh, customers, things of that nature. Um, and again, that fine line between bad business and intent to defraud. But you usually know it, right? Like, I know damn well you did this. I just can't prove it. Yep. I want to thank Suzanne so much for joining us. Normally, we would say here are her social media accounts, but for obvious reasons, she's not super active on social media. So if you want to learn more about 
her research and the things that she's working on or get in touch with her and find out more about how you can get involved in financial crime investigations, the show's email is right there in the episode description. Send us an email. We'll pass it on to her. Okay. Now let's bring in John Shaw and get to the pointless part of the show. How do you feel about cheating in life? Not like cheating on a partner or something like that, but like cheating to get ahead. Uh, I mean, obviously, I would prefer not to do it because, you know, as a red-blooded American, we're born and bred on hard work and, you know, hard work gets you where you want to be. But let's be honest, we've all cheated at something in our life. And if you if you're sitting there listening to this saying, I've never cheated, think about it, because, yes, you have. Really, like the American value is put out there as hard work, but it's really more cheating. Because if you look at the people who are generally successful in their field, whatever that field is, they've always usually done some stuff that you're a little bit like, ooh, <laughs> not that's that's you're pushing the boundaries of legality and ethics in most of those circumstances. I'm under the impression, and I, I'm probably wrong here, but. Uh... I probably shouldn't start the sentence. I'm probably wrong. Uh, most billionaires are crooks or cheaters. Like, it's just the way it is. Yeah. M- most people of influence in the world have cheated at something or some way to, to get to where they are. Do you feel like you should cheat more? Or are you comfortable with your level of cheating? So here's my thing. If I wasn't worried about getting caught, because I would get caught. And I'm not talking about cheating like, I don't know, going to the grocery store and maybe stealing a couple of pounds of salami. I'm talking about like, you know, uh, frauding people out of thousands of dollars to make me rich. If I could cheat that way, I, I you know, it would be a tough one. However, it's always been the thought of getting caught. And also, like I said, I don't think I'm smart enough nor have the heart to, to do serious cheating. I will say this, and and this doesn't matter in the grand scheme of real cheating, but it still kind of does. Like sports, you know, like you take baseball from the late 90s into the early 2000s, and the guys who were doing steroids that set records and blah, blah, blah. I've never had a a real issue with that. I've got no problem with people in sports taking performance-enhancing drugs. I don't personally think that any professional athlete is not doing something. And... I don't have any judgment against that whatsoever. I'd do the exact same thing. Like, there's no reason The Rock should look the way The Rock looks at 50. Well, yeah, dude. That yeah. That is a huge pet peeve of mine, is when they do these interviews with celebrities who have done these body transformations, and they're like, hey, I just got like this from adding some push-ups. Like, dude, <laughs> that's what annoys me about it, is when people don't tell the truth about it. Like, hey, you, movie star, why do you suddenly look like this? Well, I started working like... Tell me what your cycle is. Like, don't pretend like you just got this way by doing some hard work and cleaning up your diet because you didn't. <laughs> you may be healthy because of that, but you don't look like that because of that. That's a huge pet peeve of mine. I hate that. Which, by the way, great news. Had a physical last week. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm the healthiest I've ever been. The healthiest you've ever been. Is that good health or not? Listen, my blood pressure is great. My cholesterol is amazing. My blood sugar is actually lower than than where it was five years ago. Not that anyone listening to this cares to know this. You know, I, I got I got a quick talking to about the BMI index, which is complete bullshit. Um, 
Right. I like how you try to immediately distance yourself from any responsibilities relating to it. Okay, I'm five eleven. I weigh right. two. I weigh two seventy five. Uh huh. I'm you got a, five, and you you're gonna go ahead and you're gonna about to make a claim that like yeah that's perfectly legitimate. No, I no. Of course, I need to lose weight. But he told me, and I actually like this doctor, so I'm not putting him on blast. Uh, that according to the BMI index, uh, a, a male who's five eleven should weigh anywhere between 190 and 200 pounds. So you're telling me just to be considered not obese, I have to lose 80 pounds? That's kind of ridiculous. Science doesn't care about your feelings, bro. Here's the thing. I lose 20 to 30 pounds, which I'm, I'm going to plan on trying to do. We'll see what happens. I think, though, that there is a shocking amount of weight that a grown man can lose and not necessarily realize it. Like, you could look at me, for example, who looks relatively in shape. Like, people would be like, oh, okay, that's relatively in shape person. But I used to weigh, as an adult, 40 pounds less. Like, I think that you can lose a lot more weight than you think. It's just a money scheme. It's some bullshit data points based on science that doctors use to make you feel bad. Listen to that. Listen to that sentence that you just uttered. A bull, bullshit data points made up by scientists who it's, are doctors. Right? Like, what do they know about health? Listen, I hear what you're saying, and I don't necessarily agree that people's bodies disagree with you in the idea that people's bodies can't necessarily just be put down into this one scale that kind of fits everybody. But I think that you're kind of dis. You're putting aside some responsibility, and maybe you don't have to lose 80 pounds, but you probably should lose 60, right? It's not like this thing is just completely wrong that, you know what, this BMI says I need to lose 80 pounds, but in reality, I should only lose like five. I even said it. The numbers probably are correct. However, I feel like it's become a tool used by medical professionals to influence people's decisions or you know, come back and see me every month and it's going to be $300 on your insurance so we can track your non-progress. You know what I mean? It's just, it, it just, I know what I need to do. I don't need you to tell me. I'll do it when I'm ready or I'm just going to have this quarter pounder of a cheese. I think that there's a fine line between kind of people saying like, look, this thing isn't for me and this is who I am versus people not taking accountability for their action. I think that there's a little bit of an excuse culture. Okay, so are you going to tell us about your wedding? Did, did you make the best man speech or not? I did, and actually it was, uh, yeah, so one of my best friends, Mark, got married this past weekend. Everything went well. Um, did you blow it? I did not. Actually, the speech went so well that, uh, you know, I had people coming up complimenting me, asked me if I'd ever done stand-up before. He's riding high. You're riding awful high. You're riding awful high. We're going to have to bring you down. <laughs> uh, I've never – here's something for you. I've never flipped over a golf cart in my life. And we, me and the person I was playing – we were playing golf Saturday morning for the wedding. And me and the person that were in this golf what? cart, I was obviously driving. That was kind of a worrisome time there for about 45 seconds. Hmm. And also, I don't know if you've ever been hit by a golf ball, by an errant golf ball. No, uh, I haven't. Uh I imagine it fucking hurts. Yeah, somebody in our foursome, uh, we were standing around waiting to tee off, and we hear like a ball come through the trees, and it went right between his legs. I mean, literally between his legs. I mean, if it was oh. a foot higher, it would have went right up his butt. I'm going to give the golf cart story, I'm going to give it a six. 
Okay. Right? Like I don't I'm not visualizing it too much. I think you took a little bit too much credit for your actions, right? And you made the story sound like, oh, okay, it's probably not as cool as what he was talking about. So I'm going to give that a six. Could have been a seven, I think, if you would have told Not that you told it not well, but I think that if you would have told it better, okay, could have been a seven. Mm-hmm. The golf ball story, though, I'm going to have to give like a three because okay. somebody's got to get, right? Like the fact that it wasn't you that almost get hit brings it down. The fact that you didn't right. The fact that you didn't get hit brings it down. Then it gets brought down because it wasn't you that almost got hit. Then it was some random guy that almost got hit. All right, right. One more, so one like, more story. I've been to a golf course and I could almost say like, oh, I almost got hit by a golf ball every time I go to the golf course. This should at least get a nine out of you because you would appreciate this. So uh, you know, after already cer- though, you've you've already dropped me a point. Regardless. After the ceremony, uh, the wedding party goes off in the golf course to take photos. And uh, by the way, it was kind of weird because each, you know, there was four groomsmen, four bridesmaids, whatever. We had like six golf carts and it was a groomsman and a bridesmaid per golf cart. So you're in your suits, you're in your dresses and you're driving around a golf cart uh, to, you know, to different locations. Anyways, we back up to a hole. Uh, Groom and the bride go to take some photos. Uh, The hole kind of slopes up and then slopes right down. That's where we are. Uh, we see a guy hit a ball, kind of rolls off the back of the green. We're like, okay, well, that was kind of close, kind of weird. Uh, we see him walk up the hill, and out of nowhere, he just chucks his golf club like, like 15 yards in the air, picks it up. He's all pissed. You know, we're like, we have no idea what happened. He had no idea that he thought he lost the golf ball. It was just at the back of the, like at the back of the hole. And I've never seen a man chuck a golf club as far as he did uh it was it was it was fucking fantastic did you tell him where the ball was absolutely not good good no good i don't I, you know did I, you laugh loud enough that he could hear you yeah of course of course we did did he make eye contact with you or someone else i think when he realized because once again coming up the the fairway there you couldn't really see the back like the bottom of the the, the hole or whatever back of the the side of the hill where the hole was and uh you know you, you see 12 people just staring at you laughing. I think it kind of humbled them real quick. Mm. Now, okay. If he would have then told you, got like stared right back at you and then told your whole group to go fuck yourself, <laughs> then then we'd be talking like a really, like we'd be talking seven, eight, nine. Otherwise, I can only give you a five. All right, well. That's the best that I can do. Okay. All right. You ready? All right. Let's uh, start here. Jury Descamps, Justin Rumley, Ben Kettle, Ronald Miranda Jr., uh, let me see, Alan James, Mildred Torre, Adam Scott, Amber Rudette, Malvin Moe, and James Glenifer. Is it Malvin? M-A-L-V-I-N? It's not Melvin. 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 Oh, okay. I was going to say, like, Malvin. Malvin, Malvin, Malvin. Melvin. Malvin. <laughs> All right. Melvin. Uh, let's see. I got a okay. couple of bangers for you. Uh, what's more antiquated nowadays? What? Nicholas. What, what, is, what is less? You know what antiquated means. Uh, kind of. It's one of those words that, like, I know exactly what somebody's talking about, but I don't know what the actual technical definition is. What is what is more useless of a task to do nowadays? Write write a letter or write a check? Well, probably writing a check. 
Because writing a letter can be kind of an emotional experience that somebody could have with them, mm-hmm. right? Like that could be a memento that people could keep, but there's no reason to write a check, especially not on – we had a financial expert on this episode. If you missed that part, she actually talks about how you don't even need to check to write it. You can write a check on a piece of paper or a Post-it note. All you need is your account number and a routing number. I actually saw one somebody – write one at the grocery store the other day, which is probably the first time in three or four years I've actually seen somebody do it in public. <laughs> you can go years without seeing it now. Uh, let's see. Uh, at this point in your life, however old you are, 43 or whatever, uh, would you spend your money or do you save your money? I'm actually trying to get better about spending my money. Not that I have a lot of money and not that I'm the age that you would like to think that I am. But... <laughs> I'm trying to get a little bit like, you know what? You can enjoy things a little bit. Yeah, I, I th- just think your thoughts are a little different, you know, entering your 40s or like you, your 50s. It's just, it's different. So I like how I'm getting older and shorter every episode. <laughs> you have a BMI of 68 or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't really have any, any good current events to bring up, man. It's all, you know, I was going to ask you about Blockbuster. You- There's this campaign now um, to uh, not only bring the store back. But apparently, hold on. The other part of this is uh, apparently people are going and finding like the old uh, plastic. Uh, I don't know what you want to call them, covers. You know, like the blockbuster covers, the blue and the white with the you know yeah, movie yeah, description, yeah. blah blah blah. And apparently on eBay, some of them are going for like 150, 200 bucks a piece. And it just seems it just it just baffles me. But before you talk, I would love to see blockbuster come back because I do miss a good video store. I I would agree with that, right? Like I do like the idea of kind of going to a video store and looking through things. But this is the general trend that seems to be happening. And you and I are old enough to remember all of it where basically everything that was popular in our childhood is now coming back. All of the clothes, all of the trends, all of that stuff, it's now all coming back around. For sure. Uh, right? I mean, hell, some of it's already come and gone. You know, like Furby's. A lot of the toy brands, like, you know, Turtles and things. I mean, Turtles are always going to be popular, but it goes in waves. Um, Beanie, hell, there was even a Beanie Baby craze like 10 years ago, again. Do you, do you think, though, that is because these things are somehow popular again or because we have run out of ideas? <laughs> we, we're out of ideas. You can make an argument for movies we ran out of ideas a long time ago. It's all basically the same movie. I think Top Gun 2 is a perfect example of that. You have a movie released, what, 20 plus or 30 plus years after Probably the original? Years, yeah. And it's it's going to be the number one movie of the year. It's, it's nothing different either. You know what I mean? It's just the same old Top Gun, but yet the nostalgia, this and that, and it's going to be the number one movie of the year probably in terms of box office earnings. I'd go to a blockbuster. I really yeah. would. Once again, this is something that all you young kids out there wouldn't wouldn't understand, but there's nothing like getting to go to Blockbuster on a Friday night and picking out, you know, I don't know, three or four movies and a couple video games for the weekend with your buddies, and it only would cost you 10, 12 bucks to rent all of them. What do you hate more, Michael's or Joanne's Fabric? Both equally. I, I don't remember yeah. the last time I was ever in a Joanne Fabrics, to be honest. I've been in a Michael's, though. Do you have a store that makes you feel physically sick when you go inside? Because for me, if I go into a Michael's or a Joanne's Fabric, I start to feel physically ill. 
Um, I, I could say it. It might offend some people, but I can say it if you want me to. Do it. Uh, a Walmart. I just feel icky when I'm in a Walmart. And I'm not even really sure why. It's just, you know, the colors, the 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 people, the, you know, the history of the business. It's just, just icky, man. It's just bleh. So. For me, when I go into a Michaels or a Joann's Fabric, I just start to feel like, oh. <laughs> like, I start to feel physically sick. I mean, I, I'm also that way with Hot Topic. You know, I walk in a hot topic. I'm like, oh shit, I'm in the wrong place. I felt that way with it's not around anymore. I don't think, but the buckle. It's also kind of intimidating walking into a shoe store nowadays. Like, if you're just an average Joe like myself and you're just looking for a nice white pair of New Balances, like you are not getting any attention. Are you ready for a top five? Top five. Your th- camera just broke. Yeah, I know. I was, <laughs> I was gonna move my arm out and like do this whole thing but it, yeah let's do the top are you five. cramped in there are you cramped you um, look a little cramped right uh, like you could you look like you might be shooting on a widescreen and have like one inch of space between your face and the door uh well that's that's the that's the magic of cinema isn't it nick well i guess <laughs> hey what do you think window. of my color man is it coming in or what yeah no no not really I'm incredibly tan, oddly tan, <laughs> golden looking. You are actually. Yeah, it's a little strange. Um, okay, so our top five is top five life experiences. We thought of this because of John's wedding. So, or not his wedding, but the wedding that he went to. So what's your number five on life experiences? Uh, having a major illness or injury. Have you had one of those? Yeah, I've had some kind of serious stuff. I did almost kill my liver twice, so there's that as well. Killed his liver with alcohol and Mountain Dew. My number five is learning to drive. I think once you start driving, that's a big change in your life. Like, that's the first time you get a good glimpse of independence. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. It's all my honorable mention. I didn't put it in the top five, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's not bad. My number four is similar to that, uh, that kind of, you know, baby steps. And I have, you know, uh, going to college or leaving home for the first time as my number four. I didn't put going to college. I felt like you kind of have the possibility of coming back when you do that. I felt I put, though, going away for the first time, like really going away, moving out of your hometown and not keeping a decent majority of your stuff at your parents' house. <laughs> like that's what I would say is not my number four. Okay. When, so, okay, so when did you first do that? Uh, I mean, it would have been 21. I mean, I went to college, and I didn't come home very often, so – I mean, 17, really, but in terms of, like, leaving uh, and and not being college, it would have been 21. Yeah, okay, here's a question for you. Do you think people who have never left their hometown have gone out on their own in life? I'm going to say yes, but based upon, like I said, I understand if you you never leave your hometown or your city. I get that. Some people don't have the opportunity, but if you have the opportunity and you don't, then yes, I believe you're missing out. You have to see other things. You have to meet other people, you know, especially like where you come from, Derby, Kansas, population one. I mean, what if you would have just stayed in Derby for the rest of your life? I think it depends on the size of this, the place that you're from. If it's sure. under 50,000, I think that you do have to leave at some point for an extended period, at least like, let's say six months. Sure. 
Yeah. Otherwise, it kind of like, uh, you've never really gone out there. Yeah, I'm, I, th- I mean. Yeah. But if it's over 50,000, I think that the place is big enough mm-hmm. that you can kind of like still be on your own a little bit. I think that you have to to find out who you really are in some ways. All right. Well, before you start getting all sappy on me, uh, I'm going to put number three as uh, uh, marriage or, you know, finding your significant other, whether, you know, whatever that means. Mm, my, my number three, too, wedding. I think that's pretty okay. much right where wedding should be in the scale of life experiences. Like a lot of people may think that that's going to be the biggest thing that they ever do, but mm, not really. What's your number two then? I actually think number two is bigger than number three, obviously, even though I, I would agree with you. I feel like people always put marriage above this. I think my, our two number no, I think our number two is about to be the same the way you're going with it. And I agree with you if you agree with me. Uh, my number two is buying a house. My number two is also buying a house. I think that's a bigger life experience than getting married. I do too. And in the moment, it isn't, right? Getting married, everything that comes with it, you know, it's it's whatever. Uh, but buying a house is obviously at least a 30-year commitment, if not longer for some. And uh, there's always issues, et cetera, et cetera. You just don't realize. And then, you know, God forbid your your marriage doesn't work out. And then the house becomes an even bigger liability, and it's just, you know, yes, buying a house to me is definitely a bigger life event than uh, getting married. Well, I mean, getting married, like, all that's getting hurt is feelings. Uh, my number one is, obviously, I think it's probably, once again, uh, I feel like our, our lists are similar. Um, even though my actual number one is is the death of a, of a spouse or a child, like a loved one, a serious loved one, but... I'm going to reverse mm. that. I'm going to be happy and positive and say that the number one is, uh, you know, obviously having a child. Yeah. That pretty much changes all of your life. I don't think that anything could be higher than that in terms of a life yeah. experience. Okay, but what minor thing would you say changed your life? Like, ooh, this wasn't a big, big deal, yeah. but that ended up changing my life significantly, and I wouldn't have, wouldn't would not have anticipated it. Uh, probably, probably moving to Florida, like, you know, getting out on my own. If we're going to go a specific event, probably, uh, the liver. Cause I realized Mm. then at, at a very young age that, you know, and it sounds bullshit by the way, cause I feel like everyone says this, but like, I'm not invincible. You know, I, you know, I'm, I was brought to my knees pretty fast in the matter of a night. And the only person that was there to fucking talk to is you. So imagine my life. No, life has a way of like when you screw around with like nature or your health, it has a really weird way of like reminding you that you, yeah, you're pretty fragile in the grand scheme of things. I would say it's surprising how meeting different people can change your life, right? Not just, yeah, I would say that's a smaller thing, right? Like you think about the idea of that just meeting your significant other is going to change your life. But in reality, it's, it's not just that it's meeting other people that you don't really anticipate that ends up changing your life in different ways, right? Like you meet this person, you have this job, you meet this person, you become friends, you do these things. What's in your honorable mention? Oh man, I I wrote down a lot, but so I'll try to keep it quick here. Uh, So divorce moving for the first time, uh, losing or getting your first like real job. Um, 
let's see, uh, going to prison or going to jail for the first time. Uh, I don't have as many as I thought. Do uh, you think it's a bigger deal? These are two people who have not been to jail for an extended period of time. But do you think it's bigger going to jail the first time or going to jail the second time? I think the second time probably because that usually means you're going to be going for a lot longer oh, than the first time. Oh, that's true, right? Like usually. you did this again. Yeah. It is now a lifestyle, right? I would imagine that the chances that if you've been to jail, like as soon as you go to jail a second time, there's probably a third one coming. Or you're not getting out for at least, you know, six months this time. Yeah, you could make a legitimate thing like, look, every things happen to people. Mm-hmm. And maybe you ended up there because of some kind of extant circumstances the first time. Yeah. But if you're going back the second, like, <laughs> right now, this is, yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got first big failure. Okay. That's a good one. Traveling to another country. All right. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you so much for joining us. If you get a chance, subscribe, leave us a rating or review. We really appreciate it. Really helps us out. I can't wait, can't wait to launch this new voicemail feature. So let me know what you think are some of the best life experiences. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.